Welcome to the Finding Sustainability Podcast. This is Stefan, and today I'm talking with Liz Carlisle. Liz is an assistant professor in the Environmental Studies Program at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where her work focuses on fostering a more just and sustainable food system. Liz holds a PhD in geography from UC Berkeley and a BA in folklore and mythology from Harvard University. She formerly served as a legislative correspondent for agriculture and natural resources in the office of U.S. Senator John Tester. She is the author of two books about transitions to sustainable farming, one titled Lentil Underground, published in 2016, and the other titled Grain by Grain, which she co-authored with farmer Bob Quinn. So please welcome Liz Carlisle. Uh, welcome to the podcast. It's really, it's really a pleasure to have you on. Thanks. Yeah, looking forward to our conversation. I wanted to start off with a little bit more of a, like a fun question. If you have a favorite lentil dish, and I think we'll get into the reasons why that might be an interesting question, but uh, do you have a favorite lentil dish? Are you still eating a lot of lentils in your life? Yes. Oh my gosh. I actually, um, all four of the last uh, four days, and it's like, it's like choosing a favorite child, a favorite lentil dish for me. But uh, I have to say that the the Ethiopian preparation um, still hands down my favorite. Um, Messer Wat. Um, it's really simple, but lentils and spice together. Wow. That's all you need. <laughs> what is the uh, preparation method that they use? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's slow cooked. Um, so just the slow cooking of um, onions and berbera which is the, the spice blend from Ethiopia that's like totally at the heart of this dish. And so making this sauce and then, um, and then red lentils, um, the, the split lentils. Um, so they get really soft and kind of turn into this like a doll type of texture. And it's just this really hearty, nourishing, totally satisfying stew. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I was looking before doing this is doing some research about your background and how you came to studying uh, sustainable farming systems. And I'm, I'm interested in your background and how there is there is a thread through a country music background, a folklore and, and mythology studies and a sustainable farming systems nexus there. And I, I'm really interested to hear, you know, how this progression through your life has, has gotten you now to where you're focusing on farm farming systems. And can you give us a little bit of your, your educational and maybe personal background? Yeah. You, you know, I think for me, it really started with my grandmother who lost our family farm in the Dust Bowl. Um, which was just a huge event in her life, of course, and, and really tragic for her family and a number of other families. And so I think I got a sense of the, the human stakes of sustainable agriculture and that the importance of caring for our soil is just so deeply connected to the idea of, of caring for each other and having resilient communities. Um, but then she also had a lot of just really fun stories about growing up on the farm and, and being connected to all the elements of that farm, including the animals and the plants and just this kind of deep connection to land that really appealed to me. So I think um, I've been trying to recover that, essentially, um, for my family in some way in my own life, that kind of connection to land and that um, working with other people to try to figure out how to make a sustainable food system that won't lead to those kinds of tragedies and disruptions like my grandmother experienced, but that we could, we could sustain those really nourishing connections to land. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to hear farmers' stories, I think, about stewarding land and being connected to land. And that's, that's a lot of what I was up to when I was studying folklore and when I was a country singer was trying to understand what we learn about the human condition 
from people who are engaged in these land-based livelihoods. What do the reflections of farmers have to tell us about how to live better um, with each other as humans and which the other beings that we're, we're sharing this earth with? Um, and then in the course of hearing those kinds of stories, realizing that there were some common threads from U.S. farmers about the kinds of obstacles that they faced in trying to, um, you know, live a sane life <laughs> with some sane values um, of kind of reciprocity and stewardship, that there were political obstacles and obstacles in the way the, the farm economy was structured. And so as I was hearing this and reflecting on this, an organic farmer from my home state of Montana got elected to the U.S. Senate. Um, talking about these issues and talking about the need to build a green economy and the synergy between, um, you know, economic development in, in rural places and environmental stewardship and at the same time growing healthier food. That, that essentially a, an agroecological farming system and a sustainable food system could help us with all those things at the same time. So I left country music and went to work for Senator John Tester as legislative correspondent for agriculture and natural resources. And I realized that the, um, the wisdom that he had to share about a more ecological farming system was not his alone, that he had emerged from this movement of farmers in central Montana who had banded together to build ecological farming systems, to, to figure out more diverse crop rotations and soil building cover crops to get off of a way of farming that had been, you know, monocultures of wheat dependent on chemicals and dependent on commodity markets towards these more diversified farming systems that can be more ecologically self-supporting and then farmers could be selling a diversity of crops into higher value markets. Um, and that he, he came from, you know, this movement that had been going on for decades to build capacity, to actually build the processing facilities and distribution and farmer science that underpinned all of this. And so as I started to hear from some of these other people in the course of my job and understand and appreciate that this was really an important um, kind of hotspot, I guess, of agroecological transition, I got inspired to pursue that as a thesis project and go back to grad school I went to Berkeley. I uh, enrolled in the geography program, which I which appealed to me because it was interdisciplinary and I could focus on both social and ecological dimensions of agroecological transition. Um, and then my project was visiting with these farmers in Montana to understand this really remarkable transition on, you know, thousands of acres to more diversified cropping systems that were less reliant on chemicals, um, organic systems. Um, and so that's how I ended up uh, in the profession that I'm in now as a professor and, um, you know, just trying to connect students and the next generation of sustainability leaders with people who are on the land and have been experimenting with some of these things now um, for decades. And I think really together, these, um, these innovative farmers and people out there in the agroecology movement and students who are really hungry for um, a new way of organizing our economy and our communities, um, I, think, I think we are building a vision for a different way um, to 
to be human. I mean, I think that's really what's at the center of food systems transition is just complete re-understanding of how we are, how we fit into this um, community of beings that we're living on on this earth. Yeah, well, I think your story is just really interesting. And one thing which I, I'm coming back to uh, uh, and what I was thinking about when I was looking at your bio was your experience with Senator Tester and to to really th- like kind of ask how that has shaped the way that you think about your academic practice now. I mean, how, how has really that practical experience of working with policy at that level shaped now how you engage with policy in, in your research um, and kind of bridging this policy to, to research nexus? Yeah, uh, well, I think it definitely gave me an appreciation for the idea that policy is always connected to politics. And so, you know, it's not a theoretical exercise of trying to analyze, you know, what kind of policy could we write that would kind of best balance incentives. And you could imagine thinking about policy in that way, in a kind of more idealized way. And I think what I learned being in the tester office is that really what's happening is is politics. It's about, um, you know, building coalitions and about shifting norms gradually such that that people see themselves in a policy effort. Um, So you could have a really great policy written that would in theory be very effective, but if it doesn't, if in the process of trying to get there, you don't engage people in a way that speaks to their values and experience and helps them understand how their own lives and dreams are connected to this policy, <laughs> you don't get very far. So I think it, it gave me an appreciation for what, um, you know, organizing and really fine-grained politics looks like on a day-to-day basis. How do you really get from one sort of paradigm to another? Yeah, one thing which makes me think about in your state of Montana, which you, I believe you outlined further in your book, Lentil Underground, is how how farmers mobilize into the political process or how farmers can self-organize themselves, um, whether you give the example of this kind of self-organization around the organic farming or the pulses or lentil farming movement, which you describe, and the link between the self-organization of farmers and the policy process um, at the higher, perhaps at the state level or the U.S., what does that interaction look like between farmers on the ground and then broader agricultural policy Um, in the different states uh, and perhaps even at the U.S. level? Well, I think that farmers have come to understand that the Farm Bill, which is this big omnibus piece of legislation, which means a bunch of different little bills get combined into one great big bill that gets voted on approximately every five or six years, depending on what's going on politically, Mm -hmm. right? So there's this this huge bill, and in it um, is a whole lot of money for crop insurance, Um, Also, food security programs is in there, um, supplemental nutritional assistance program or what used to be called food stamps um, and lots and lots of other smaller programs that impact, um, you know, incentive payments that farmers can get for conservation practices and different kinds of access to information and resources. And I think that farmers have come to understand that, you know, A, this is a huge constraint on what they can or can't do. It's helpful in some respects, but is limiting them in other respects. And that there are other ways that it could be written. So you now see that, um, you know, lots of farmers who have gotten concerned about the direction of agriculture because of their own personal experience and something that they face in their own operation, something like, oh my gosh, 
prices for wheat are really low this year. Or, you know, if you're in the Midwest, wow, you know, I'm really relying on my corn crop, but it was so wet that I couldn't even get in and plant it. So something like that that's very immediate leads to then talking to other farmers in the area and understanding it at a little bit more regional scale that this is a problem that other people share and then getting engaged in trying to find solutions and then realizing that uh, the farm bill or another piece of federal legislation, but typically the farm bill, has some bearing on those solutions and how effective and how long term they could be. So, for example, you know, if you're that corn farmer in the Midwest who had so much moisture that you couldn't get in and plant this year and you're saying to yourself, wow, this is this is really vulnerable to be dependent on this one crop. And yes, you know, there's crop insurance that will help pay me back. But is this really the way I want to be farming? Um, and then you look at, well, the subsidy structure is discouraging me from diversifying into more crops because it's really incentivizing me and my neighbors to plant corn and soybeans because there's really good insurance for those. And so they're essentially no risk from a financial standpoint. Um, so maybe so now farmers are getting engaged in saying, well, maybe we should change the way the insurance program works so that it would actually encourage us to be more resilient ecologically and not just financially, which is to say like that you are actually creating a kind of insurance on the ground by having more diverse crops, having cover crops that would help infiltration of water um, so that, you know, there'd be a sense that the whole region was ready for climate change and not that eventually we're going to bankrupt crop insurance and that everybody's going to be in a world of hurt all at once. What's your impression of that loss of community in the farming systems, perhaps over the last you know decades in the U.S., um, and how that's now kind of coming back to shape some of the agricultural policies or, or practices now? Yeah, I mean, I think those values of community are very strong. So you have, um, in a lot of places where people farm, they have been there for multiple generations. There are long-standing traditions of mutual aid, of people, you know, literally coming together and help raise barns for each other. Um, there are a lot of people out there who remember doing that with their parents and grandparents and maybe still share equipment or the kind of thing where you, you know, help fix somebody's car if they got stuck because you're pretty far away from an urban area where you'd call the auto repair place or something like that. Um, I think those values remain really, really strong. Um, and yet, I think it's a little bit harder to practice community because people are farming these really large acreages, right? There's been these kind of get big or get out pressures. So it's just farther to go to your nearest neighbor because you have all this acreage and um, it takes a lot of time to farm all that acreage. And people are pretty strapped for, um, my sense is there used to be more of that kind of time in agricultural communities where people would be together at the coffee shop in the morning, or there would be certain holidays that people would celebrate together. There was more of, um, you know, sort of community institutions because you had people closer together and, and they could support, you know, schools in some areas where there aren't schools anymore. And once you lose school, you lose all the things that used to happen there. Like, it used to be a polling place and it used to be a place where community theater happened at night or, you know, an annual potluck, those kinds of things. I think I think the values of community are still very strong. But I think these practices through which people sustain the values um, have been really challenged. So I think one of the questions for the sustainable food movement is how do we um, 
really draw on and revive some of those values and make it possible to practice them on a regular basis um, so that, that people can continue this sense of, of supporting each other and, um, you know, maybe even build some new institutions around things like sharing equipment or cooperative marketing or different ways of sharing knowledge. Um, you know, farmer field days are always so cool if you ever get a chance to go to one. And networks like the Practical Farmers of Iowa, I think, are really um, building on this idea of, of farmers sharing knowledge. And then, you know, another really big, something that really needs to be said, too, is that so many people now are completely shut out of land ownership or farming. Um, and many communities that do have agrarian histories, um, immigrant communities, um, the descendants of enslaved people who have agrarian histories and a lot of knowledge that were obviously systematically shut out of land ownership, Um Lots and lots of young people who don't come from farming families, uh, people like me, maybe who had farmers somewhere in their background, but don't have access to land. So I think, um, you know, we don't want to like advocate for going back to something. There is no like agrarian, dreamy, perfect state to go back to. Um, I do think there's some threads of, of agrarian community out there that draw on backgrounds that many of us had, but I think we're, we're looking at moving to a new future of um, agricultural community in which many, many, many more people are able to participate and we build food systems that are much more interdependent than the ones that we have now. Yeah, well, I think it would be a good good to get a summary of your, of your book, Lentil Underground, because I think it would put a little bit of a context into some of the points you just made. If you're willing, perhaps you could just give us a summary of the book and, and perhaps the story of, uh, of David Oyen, if I'm pronouncing his name right. Yeah, yeah. So Little Underground um, is a story about the transition to sustainable food systems that happened in central Montana, really starting in the mid-1980s. And in the 1980s in the U.S., there was a farm crisis, not unlike actually the dynamics that are going on right now. Um, grain prices were very low. Fertilizer prices and fuel prices were very high. Um, there was a lot of disruption in land markets. And there were also three really major years of drought. And so, you know, industrial agriculture had had been a thing for about two decades at this point in, in the grain belt in the U.S. So people had shifted to these more monocultural farming systems using a lot of fertilizer and these varieties of grain that had been bred to respond well to a lot of fertilizer. So a lot of fertilizer, a lot of herbicides, so expensive inputs, but the promise was they'd have really high yields um, so they would be able to pay for those inputs. So they were going into a lot of debt for bigger machinery, you know, just everything kind of increasing in scale with more industrial inputs. And so the whole thing was, um, you know, vulnerable to collapse because it relied on these big sustained yields. <laughs> and the margins were really thin because with everybody producing so much grain, you know, the prices were really low. It was incentivizing overproduction. So the farm crisis was when kind of all these chickens came home to roost with low prices, you know, bad weather that kind of disrupted the yields for a few years. And the soil wasn't in great shape after being farmed this way with monocultures and chemicals. Um, so during the farm crisis, a lot of farmers faced basically, am I going to go bankrupt? Am I going to have to leave farming? Um, 
And a number of farmers started looking for alternative ways to be in agriculture because they did want to stay on the land. It was important to them for reasons way beyond their finances. It was who they were. It was their family's tradition. And so there were a lot of farmers looking to what was called low-input sustainable agriculture in those days. Um, And there was a cluster of people in Montana who were doing this. And their question essentially was, okay, we farm wheat, we sell wheat, we're reliant on fertilizer because our wheat needs a lot of nitrogen. So we know that wheat, we can't just grow wheat and wheat and wheat. It's not sustainable on its own. So that's why we're reliant on these chemicals. Is there something that we could rotate in between our wheat crops that could essentially substitute for having to use chemical fertilizer and chemical herbicide? So if we had a more diverse farming system, could we both return fertility to the system and have enough diversity that it would break up the weed cycle so we wouldn't need chemicals to manage weeds? And if we did that, might that mean we could access a higher value market So instead of just selling commodity wheat and having to take whatever price we got at the elevator, we could actually go out there and find these new organic consumers, these people in California and Washington who want um, food that's grown in a more sustainable way. And so a group of farmers essentially came together and realized that if they rotated lentils into their wheat, which is a crop in the bean and pea family, um, so it has the capacity to take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and work with bacteria in the soil to convert it into a plant available form, um, that they could essentially sort of make their own fertilizer and create these more diverse systems that wouldn't need herbicide. And and so then the whole question was like, how do we market these lentils? So it's the story of, you know, a, a bunch of farmers and community folks coming together to kind of pull together crowdfunding for a a processing facility to clean the lentils to food grade and figure out how to get them to natural food stores. Um, And, you know, now you go from Montana having just a few thousand acres of lentils in 1987 to fast forward 30 years, and there's more than a hundred times as much lentil acreage in Montana. So you've transitioned from this monoculture of wheat to lots and lots of farmers now interplanting, uh, well, in between wheat crops, doing lentils or chickpeas, um, and then also doing soil building cover crops. Um, so it's become a more diverse farming system. Um, you know, there's the potential, at least on many of these farms, of not being reliant on chemicals. All the folks in the Little Underground story are in the organic market. But there's also a lot of conventional farmers who are trying these rotations, and, you know, hopefully over time that will allow them to use less nitrogen fertilizer. So it really is a hopeful story about how farmers can come together and create much more environmentally sustainable farming systems while improving their livelihoods and producing this nutritious food at the same time. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And I'm I'm wondering, what's your impressions, having been in looking at these food sectors, agricultural sector for a while now, you know, is this example that you find in Montana and and this, these, these lentil farmers, do you think that's something which is is spreading around the country um, in different parts of the agricultural sector, at least in the US? Yeah, I, I think you find pockets everywhere where farmers are finding ways to diversify away from these really, really highly specialized systems that require inputs because they're not ecologically sustainable on their own. Um, So you find farmers who are looking to reduce their input costs and find higher value markets. And so you see this um, 
You see this in Iowa with people rotating in small grains into the corn-soy rotation, so adding oats. So if you buy oatly oat milk, you know, this is what's going on. This is um, oats that are getting rotated into corn and soy to diversify those rotations. Um, you know, there's definitely folks out here in California um, who are looking to diversify their strawberry or lettuce um, that's more of a monoculture and is susceptible to disease and makes them reliant on just one market and, um, you know, have a, have a variety of vegetables, for example, that they could then sell in direct markets. Um, so I think this is a theme um, that people recognize that being in the commodity market with an industrial farming system is a really uncomfortable place to be as a farmer because you have so little control. You're taking somebody else's price. You have a vulnerable ecological system. And it's just, um, I think most farmers really want a lot more control over their own destiny. And so people are finding ways and trying to find ways to set up um, new supply chains that allow them to be more diversified and, you know, not have all their eggs in one basket and also to have more of an ecological complement out there in the field, something that looks more like a natural ecosystem and functions more like a natural ecosystem. Um, so it doesn't need these additions of chemicals or, you know, a lot of management, a lot of tillage. It can be, um, you know, more of kind of a closed loop system. Yeah, I'm really interested in your process from a from a research perspective on how you go about developing uh, this book idea and and the process that you go through in in finding those interesting stories. I know maybe there are some connections there um, to your hometown. Um, but what is you know when you think about I'm, I'm going to write a book about this process. Was that a, was that a conscious process from the beginning, or was it more of kind of an organic process which emerged over time yeah I mean I just I, I couldn't have um you know gosh I just got so fortunate to meet this group of people and I, I had no idea at the beginning that it would turn into a book I just when I was working in the tester office and realizing that this was this whole movement of people transitioning food systems in central Montana I was just so curious and eventually realized that um you know, I got invitations to go out and see people's farms, but I was working out of the DC office and it just was clear to me that if I was really going to learn about this, that I, um, well, that I needed to do a graduate degree and do a thesis, that I needed, um, you know, months of time out in central Montana to spend with people and try to understand their farming systems and also how this movement came together. And that seemed worthwhile. And I got the sense from the fact that people were writing me and asking me to come and visit with them that um, the community um, wanted to communicate more broadly what they had done um, or they wouldn't have been writing to their senator about it. So it seemed like, well, there's some kind of an output here that I can be helpful with in um, sort of synthesizing, analyzing and telling the story. Um, but it wasn't until I kind of got into those conversations a little further that it it really um, my inner country singer, you know, was was really um, enthused by this because people were such great storytellers. They were the, the narratives that people told about why they had shifted their farming systems and what they had learned from it. Um, that's when I realized, gosh, I think this needs to be a book because it's not just something I'm going to write up in a in a journal article. And I did write journal articles about that work, but um, 
the narrative form was important, I think, to what these uh, farmers who'd come together to transition these food systems had to say um, and would communicate with people who weren't necessarily even thinking about food systems or about agriculture, but who, like all of us, are interested in the human condition and the meaning of life in this narrative communication about this transition. There was a lot of that, too, um, of essentially coming to this recognition that we belong to these larger communities, human communities and also more than human communities. And, um, you know, watching the way lentils and grain work together in a field starts you reflecting on how you work together with the people in your own community. So all of that just really felt like, gosh, this this needs to be a book. Yeah, well, on this podcast, we talk a lot about interdisciplinarity, uh, Michael and I, and we're always asking our different guests, you know, on the different perspectives and how they work together with other scientific disciplines. And for you, it's, I mean, you just gave some nice examples. I'm, I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about how you think music uh, and science and, and narrative storytelling uh, within the food systems has really helped you. I mean, what what are some of those skills that you uh, that you got from playing music and having a music background? How has that shaped how you how you engage with the, these narratives and these stories, and then how you bring that into the way that you do science now? <laughs> well, I, I think my particular trajectory in music. Um, one thing was, you know, being in country music for four years just put me in a certain cultural context. And I think that was really helpful when I started doing ethnography in a rural agricultural context. Those cultural contexts overlap. And so I think I had maybe some cultural literacy and some language and some genuine appreciation. Like, I really like hanging out in working class rural America. And I recognize that there are definitely some, there's some problems, you know, there are definitely some ways in which some of those cultural contexts need to evolve. Um, but I, I appreciate, um, and I guess I have seen a lot of daily life in agricultural spaces in the rural parts of this country. And that's partly because of the time I spent as a country singer. And a lot of the radio stations where I went and played music were also places that were, um, you know, reporting on how are things going in agriculture. So I'd be sitting there, you know, waiting to play my next single and they'd be talking about, you know, what are corn prices and, um, you know, what's the report on what the weather is looking like this season. So I think there was that um, just kind of cultural background. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think also um, music and songwriting requires a certain kind of just 100% presence um, that I think is very helpful for ethnography. Um, that ability to just kind of leave your own ego and sense of identity behind for a minute and just like fully be in someone else's reality. Um, that is, that's what I did when I was playing music. Um, and it's a really wonderful thing to get to experience on a regular basis is like just that total being with the group of people that are there to listen to you or participate in that experience. And that is also what ethnography is for me. And a lot of what you can learn from a, a really insightful ethnographic project, I think, can only come when you can that fully engage and be present. And I think music was helpful to me to being able to even get in that kind of mind space because it's really hard in the world that we live in <laughs> with digital devices and kind of just how saturated our lives are 
to leave that behind and be really fully present with another person and their experience and put yourself in that experience. Um, and then I think it's been helpful to me in thinking about writing too. Um, I think songwriting is, you know, you have to say it in three minutes. So there's a certain kind of discipline that comes from that. Mm -hmm. And, and something I loved also about writing songs in the context of country music is that it is a genre that is asking you to use the vernacular. It's asking you to say profound and complex things using people's everyday language. And I have always been really, really compelled by that practice. That's something I've always been impressed by when I see people do it in any context, whether it's music or academic writing or somebody giving a great speech. Um, so I'm after that. And I think, um, I think country music helped me with that. And I think that's something I'm still trying to do as an academic writer is to try to use vernacular language as much as possible rather than um, specialized language. And there's places for specialized language, I think, but I'm really compelled by trying to translate some of the insights that come within communities using specialized language, whether those are soil scientists or people talking about social theory, and put them into a conversation that's in people's everyday language so that it can be um, a bigger conversation and benefit from the insights of people who aren't part of that specialized community. So that's certainly was a big part of what I was trying to do in Little Underground. And there's a lot of social theory there. Actually, there's a lot of political economy, but it's all just in narrative and story. Yeah, that's a really fascinating reflection methodologically, I think, as you mentioned there about, about ethnography and about being present with people, perhaps not only ethnography, but makes me think also about just doing interviews in general with people. Yeah. And I've never thought about it from that, that methodological perspective. And I think I've never heard it, you know, taught or in a book that, you know, part of the methodology of understanding people is to be present with the people that you're interviewing. And I think there's, there's so many layers of, of community and identity, which are, or might not be wrapped up exactly in the questions that we're asking. When we do interviews with people, when as scientists, we go out and we, we talk with them, um, that can be really unpacked. And, and, and that's a fascinating methodological reflection. I think it's, it's, it's intuitive once, when you say it, but I, I haven't heard anyone think about that from a methodological point of view. I'm, it makes me think if you, if that's something that you could pass on to students when, when you think about teaching. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a really clear memory. I know where it came from for me was uh, being an undergraduate and being in class with a woman named Deborah Foster, who, um, you know, she was my mentor in the folklore program at Harvard. And, um, you know, most of her students were not going into ethnographic research. So she had this interesting puzzle of trying to help people understand why, why are they learning this? <laughs> you know, because people understand like why economics is a life skill. They understand why learning human anatomy might be relevant. There's all these classes that, you know, we kind of have this understanding of why they're relevant to your life or your job. And she was explaining the ways in which ethnography are learning how to do ethnography is just so relevant to being human. Um, and I think it is can be a very healing practice actually on both sides. And I do think in particular with kind of where we're at right now with this, this highly digital saturated way of engaging with each other. Um, I think it 
I mean, I, gosh, I think it's a sort of contemporary and socially specific manifestation that is ethnographic research of a much bigger human activity, which I want to call like witnessing, mm-hmm. you know, the combination of witnessing and storytelling. Um, and so I think it has a lot uh, to offer us besides just sort of a method of gathering data, if you will. And I think um, I've had other teachers like uh, I got to work with Kim Tallbear when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, who's just a absolutely brilliant indigenous um, feminist science and technology studies scholar. And she talked a lot about dialogue as a method and that, um, you know, that the the insights are happening right there in the conversation, that it's not that when you go back and look at a transcript and analyze it, that that's where the intellectual work happens, that it's happening right there as you're with someone. Um, And I think it is I think it opens up channels in our brains or you might even understand it more broadly than that of where those channels are kind of in our being. Um, but I think that kind of openness to something beyond the narrow ways in which we often think when we're kind of in our own heads that can come of ethnographic work is um, just critically important to the capacity for transformation or change or understanding another person's situation. Yeah, it's fascinating. It makes me think how important it is for, for social science to, to get on the map in, in terms of this depth of understanding of people inside these systems too. There's always people behind it and the farming system is, is a great example of the depth of social understanding that you need to understand how these systems function. And another thing is, you know, it makes me, makes me want to ask you, what do you really see as your, your main role as an academic? I mean, there's many different roles that, that we have um, from teaching to producing knowledge um, and also engaging with society. And I'd be interested on your perspective on, on that. And what, what is your, when you view your, your career as an academic, you know, where do you really see like where you can make a big difference and, or where you would like to make a big difference? Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I, I think my sense of that is really evolving of how do I make a difference as an academic and what is my role here and what am I going to focus on? And, you know, what what's this going to look like when I look back on it 30 years down the road? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I will actually be able to give you a better answer in 30 years, you know, to sum it up, because I, I think how I approach it on a daily basis is is trying to be responsive, you know, and to understand that um, we have these opportunities in certain moments when certain circumstances come together that are often difficult to anticipate. You know, we're we're sort of like preparing for a performance of something that's not been scheduled and we don't, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a, um, and I've heard this from a lot of people who are activists too, that, they're, um, that there's a sense of like this deep, preparation in trying to understand something and build relationships, but that the moments of opportunity to really cause transformative change um, come together in this kind of emergent way. Um, Lots of different things come together that you couldn't quite anticipate. So I think um, for me, the constant is that um, teaching is this incredible opportunity to provide a space in which young people can generate their own transformative experience and really prepare themselves to be change agents in the food system or more broadly 
you know, social and environmental change. And that's just an extraordinary opportunity that's part of an academic career. And that's the constant for me that, um, yeah, always is exciting about my work. Um, and then, you know, these opportunities to write have honestly just, they, they've been more of these kind of emergent things where it's like, okay, this is a project where it makes sense for me to engage um, doing interviews and doing ethnography and telling a story. Um, and it's hard to anticipate those things. <laughs> um, they, those things kind of land in my lap. Um, and then I sort of try to make space for them as they, you know, appear and clearly, um, you know, are things I, I want to engage with. And then, you know, periodically there are opportunities that are more around kind of the larger scale efforts and policy and ways in which, um, Lots of people come together to make a push in a particular moment of opportunity. Um, and I think we might have that um, soon, you know, in the U.S. With um, I think there's as good a chance as there's been in a long time for a major overhaul of food and farm policy, um, you know, in a couple years. So a lot of people I know are trying to prepare for that moment by thinking really carefully about what would a comprehensive food and agricultural policy look like um, if we had a different political configuration? And um, so, you know, that's always something that I'm excited to engage in, too, as there's opportunities, in addition to the ways in which those moments manifest locally and regionally. And, um, you know, I hope I can be of service now in the Santa Barbara area that I'm brand new to um, with coalitions that are working to build a more sustainable regional food system. Yeah, well, I want to I want to follow up on your some of your recent work. I know you have an article about some policies which might be able to to help change some of the the food systems in the United States. But I want to follow up first on on this idea that we, from one perspective, you could say that everybody writes two books, but we we keep them always in our head. We write the kind of narrative about our past, and we write the narrative about our own future, and those are, you know, one of the one about our past is kind of a self ethnography the story mm -hmm. we tell about how we got to where we were. I'm interested in, in your path. You know, when you look back on your, the narrative that you tell or that you s think about yourself as coming up to this point, you know, was that a narrative which was purposeful? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. In fact, um, I can't think of anybody else who's taken quite the path that I have, <laughs> um, which is great. I think we should all have our own unique paths. And I think um, for me, it comes down to two very, very simple um, North stars or guiding lights really through this whole process, which is to try to always be really honest with myself and with other people and to be kind with myself and with other people. And I think um, trying to do those two things is what has led to this path that has um, wound its way through different careers and different contexts. Um, you know, I mean, when I started country music, I had no plans to stop. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, it just really compelled me that the stories people were telling me had these common threads that were political and economic and um, and then, oh my gosh, there is this organic farmer out here working to solve these problems and I could go work for that person. And this nagging sense that the shows I was playing were sponsored by the corporations that were a really big part of the problem. 
Um, so that wasn't an anticipated change for me. Um, but it, but it flowed from the intentions that I brought to being a country singer in the first place. And then just being honest and being kind about, oh, um, there's this other context that I really need to move to here. Um, and then the same thing, I think, coming into an academic space and seeing this opportunity to learn more about this movement in Montana and to tell that story. And um, I think uh, a lot of times when we're following kind of these deeper threads of what we're looking to follow or achieve in life, it can often require a couple big changes, you know, surface surface level type of changes in what career situation we're in. Um, because, yeah, because there's this deeper red thread. Yeah. To build that narrative to see, you know, what is the narrative that you've told yourself about your own career progression? And perhaps it's not, you know, what would be foreseen as as a traditional path, but perhaps you have added value there. I think the way that you linked your perspective from your music career into where you are now was was a really good example of of two paths which you would seemingly be unconnected but they've added a lot of value into the work that you've done um i wanted to visit one of the articles that i saw that's recently published that you've led in elementa science of the anthropocene it's called securing the future of u.s agriculture the case for investing in new entry sustainable farms and it seems that you have two aims in the paper, and the first one was to examine why it's so hard to enter and succeed in sustainable farming. Perhaps you could give us a little bit of a, a summary behind the paper and, and what you found there. So we actually, we uh, this was with a group, uh, an incredible team of authors. There were, um, I think, maybe a dozen of us who worked on two papers, and so we did this bigger paper for Elementa, and then we recently published a little bit shorter paper that's really intended for a policy audience and more along the lines of how could we in the near term start to work on some of these barriers? Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the, we just wanted to document um, and really talk about these major barriers that people face who really would like to be land stewards. Um, there's a lot of young people who aren't from farming families who want careers in sustainable farming. And there are also a lot of people in this country who do actually come from farming backgrounds, who've immigrated here, um, but don't have the opportunity to have their own farm. They might be working on someone else's farm. They might be working in the services sector. Um, but there is actually, often the story is told that the reason we have this aging farming population and there's a shrinking number of farmers is that nobody wants to do this work. And I think what we want to um, make clear to people who aren't maybe in the agricultural world quite as intimately as a lot of these authors is that actually lots of people do want to farm, but we're making it so difficult. And um, sustainable farming really does, it is a more knowledge intensive system. It will require us to have more people engaged in farming um, and people who are um, doing knowledge work, not, not sort of, it's not the idea that we have a bunch of people doing um, you know, menial labor, backbreaking, the kind of labor that is basically a class project where you assign sort of the lower echelons of society to do these things, that a transition to a sustainable farming system involves the idea that we need to intentionally make farming good quality work and remunerate it well because we value it, because it 
produces both land stewardship and ecosystem services and healthy food. <laughs> um, and so there is a pathway to doing that. We just haven't, those aren't the kinds of policy choices we've made. So just to say that people face these barriers around accessing land, around accessing water, accessing markets, um, accessing equipment. Um, and there are lots of programs out there to help with these barriers. And we cited some, some that are independent, some that are part of public programs. Um, and they are helping and yet they are insufficient and they're also not sufficiently connected to each other. So people who want to take advantage of these programs end up filling up all these different applications and in touch with all these different people. So we're sort of calling for a little bit more integration of these kinds of programs that serve new entry sustainable farmers. And then we're really calling for much more, um, foundational support and more structural support that will not only help people get started, but will actually help them stay in farming. Um, that's often not talked about, that people will start a farm, but find it very, very difficult to sustain it. So we want, we're calling for a different kind of support to agriculture that will both sort of recruit and retain people into careers that I think many, many people want to have but just are not supported in, which we're saying is is silly because this has such a great return on investment for society to have people, um, you know, sequestering carbon, um, cleaning watersheds and providing healthy food. I mean, that's what an agroecological farmer is doing. And we should, um, when you look at what you get paid in that occupation compared to others and what kind of, where resources are flowing, we, we should be... Um, that's an opportunity to put resources into something that has a lot of benefit for society is to support new entry sustainable farmers. Yeah, in the second part of the paper, you, you also say that you review some of the policies and civil interventions, which are basically targeted at addressing these, these barriers. What are, what are some of those promising policies looking like when you think about some, in practice what it would look like on, on some of these smaller, newer farms? So the, the existing policy, USDA has a beginning farmer and rancher program that's now called Photo um, has a new acronym, Farmer Opportunity. Um, I forget actually what the whole acronym stands for, but there is um, USDA support for beginning farmers and ranchers. There's some technical assistance that's part of that. Um, and then there are a lot of independent programs that are great models. So here in California, there's um, California Farm Link, and we had two California Farm Link folks on this paper. Um, which helps people access land. It does some like matchmaking between people, retiring farmers or people who have land and new entry farmers who would like land. And then it also does a lot of sort of financial assistance um, for those farmers, um, getting loans and getting loans that have good terms um, so that they can get on that land. Um, we also have land trusts. So for example, the Peninsula Open Space Land Trust has a Farmland Futures Program. Um, so they're actually, um, you know, they're using philanthropic capital to purchase lands that have conservation value. Um, and they have traditionally just put that land into um, conservation management and sometimes some recreation. But now with this Farmland Futures Program, some of that land is going into ecological farm management. So you could imagine synergies between things like FarmLink and Peninsula Open Space Land Trust that could actually 
close this gap of land access. Um, and there are even state governments who are working on land access. So the state of Rhode Island um, has been buying farmland from retiring farmers um, and making it available, then putting an agricultural conservation easement on it. So the development value is no longer, um, you know, they're sort of purchasing that with the easement so that it's now at ag land value because these communities used to be agricultural communities, but now they're close enough to urban commuters that the value of the land goes up with development value. So they take that out of the equation and make it available to newer farmers. So there's programs out there like this. Um, they just aren't meeting all of the demand out there. And they're still, uh, you know, dependent to some extent on philanthropic capital or people who are starting with enough capital to at least get the, the foot in the door. So I think what we're calling for in this paper is to really broaden that access. And we're thinking about, you know, how might agriculture fit into a Green New Deal um, or a Green New Deal jobs program um, that would really broaden access to farming for, for many, many, many more people. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in your in your perspective. I heard you talking about it on the the Sustainable World Radio podcast you did a few years ago about the land land sharing versus land sparing debate, and it seems perhaps you could give us a little bit of a, a summary of that debate and where you think the state of it is at now. But it, it seems like there's this shift away from land sparing to land sharing, and and I'm wondering if some of these policies are are mirroring that shift or kind of putting that shift into practice from your perspective. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's now a, a pretty much universal understanding that this idea of land sparing, that you would have some lands designated for very, very intensive damaging industrial agriculture so that you could, quote, save other land for nature. I think it's pretty well documented at this point that those schemes have never actually played out that way, that when you um, create zones for industrial exploitation, that they just grow and get bigger and bigger because that's the logic of capital and that's how political economy works. So you don't end up sparing land for nature. You just end up with this industrial sort of sacrifice agriculture zone that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and becomes a monster. So I think um, now you see many, many, many more people. I feel like I have to say, you know, the majority of people working in agriculture embracing some degree of this land sharing perspective, which is the idea that agriculture can provide ecosystem services and habitat. Agriculture and nature are not opposites. Um, and so the goal is to figure out ways to create you know, agroecosystems that produce food and also lots of other ecosystem services. So you have this matrix, as ecologists would call it, um, that provides corridors for wildlife, that provides, um, you know, everything that the ecosystem needs to be healthy, including food provisioning services for human beings. So I think you're absolutely right. Something like the Peninsula Open Space Land Trust having a farming futures program when they used to be a more traditional, um, you know, sort of wildlands land trust reflects the fact that this land sharing idea has become much more mainstream in the conservation community, not just scientists, but also practitioners and the public interested in this, that um, we understand that there's ways for agriculture to be part of um, conservation and that, in fact, we can't achieve conservation at the sort of scales that are meaningful when we talk about things like climate change or watersheds, unless we're engaging agriculture. Think about like how much of U.S. land is in agriculture. So that's where we're going to have to make things happen, like balancing the carbon cycle or 
getting nitrates out of the watershed. If you just do it on lands that are protected, you just plain don't have enough land. <laughs> and you also just end up in a lot of big fights if you're thinking about it that way. It's like, well, the conservation's over here and the ag's over here. You're like, then you're just ceding to the reality that you're just going to have farmers and environmentalists fighting each other forever, when instead we should think about farmers have more incentive than anybody else to be an environmentalist. So if we set up a system that rewards them for doing that well, um, then you've got all these great ecosystem managers out there who deeply identify with land and its connection to their own well-being, um, rather than imagining that you're going to have to pay a bunch of public employees to do all of that or sort of um, cajole the public. <laughs> it's an elegant solution, land sharing, and I think it more deeply reflects the way that conservation and stewardship have been practiced through most of human history is that it's connected to food production and our, you know, sort of intimate relationship with the natural world rather than being separate from it. Yeah, well, I'm, I know you recently started as an assistant professor at the, in the environmental studies program at UC Santa Barbara. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear about what all of this is leading up to and, and what are some of the research projects you'd like to do over the next couple of years when you when you think about how to build on on the food systems research that you've done so far and, and the books that you've written? Yeah, um, well, I think um, the first thing is just getting to know what's already happening um, in the agroecological and sustainable food systems community in the Santa Barbara area. And um, there's some incredible longtime organic farmers, um, people who were involved at the beginning of the California organic farming movement there. Um, and uh, Rodale Institute is actually building a new California demonstration farm on one of those longtime organic farms, um, Phil McGrath's farm. And he's been organic since the early 90s and was a real pioneer in um, diversified vegetable operations with CSAs, community supported agriculture and um, doing uh, like farm to table marketing into Los Angeles and the farm to school movement. So, um, you know, some folks who had thought early on, I think, um, in California about how to move to more diversified farming systems who are still there and can speak from multiple decades of cropping rotations and building soil organic matter. Um, there's some real interesting work going on with regenerative ranching and managed grazing systems that can uh, build soil health. Um, there's a ranch in the area that's part of the um, healthy soils program that the state of California is doing where they give incentives for certain practices that we understand can help sequester carbon. So we've kind of part of the climate change solution and got to go to a field day at the Chamberlain Ranch and said so this compost application. Um, there's also some interesting work going on with coffee agar ecosystems, which of course we would associate more with the tropics, but there are varieties that are being developed for more of a temperate climate and um, some farmers experimenting with actually um, multi-strata agroforestry. So having coffee in there with um, other kinds of um, tree crops. So that's really, really interesting. The idea of some, some California agroforestry that's, that's multi-strata. And then, of course, all kinds of cool food system stuff like farm to school. There's a great long standing food co-op and farmers markets in the community. So people thinking more on the, the food systems um, end of the spectrum, too, about um, 
you know, how do we develop these markets? How do we develop food security? Because of course, in California, most of the food that we grow is being grown for export. So, and that's certainly true of mainstream farming. If you look in the kind of radius around Santa Barbara, if you go out an hour, an hour and a half. So how might we transition some of that production to more diversified systems that are creating regional food security? I'm a I'm a undergraduate alumni of the environmental studies program at Santa Barbara, so I, I'm interested in how kind of the organization of the the science system going forward. I would personally I would, I think it's going to move more towards these interdisciplinary types of institutes, for example, like environmental studies program, which which brings different types of people together, um, and kind of breaks down or kind of fuzzies the disciplinary walls a little bit. And I'm interested in how it is now at Santa Barbara in that program is, you know, what is the mix of disciplinary backgrounds? Um, what are the mix of of different context focus, which yeah, might be outside of agriculture, for example? Oh, my gosh, it's great. This is such a dream job, honestly, um, because it is. It's so diverse. So, you know, I'm coming from you've heard a little bit about my background, this kind of social ecological systems person working on agricultural food systems. Um, then we have, um, you know, an engineer who's interested in water. Um, we have a new person doing energy, renewable energy. Um, we have, um, you know, a couple folks who look at soils, which of course are central to the kinds of questions that I'm asking. Um, restoration ecologist who's done a lot of work actually right on campus and around campus. Um, so it really is a, a very interdisciplinary mix across there's an environmental historian and we're just now searching for an environmental ethics professor who would start next year. Um, so it really is this mix across a number of approaches to humanities, social sciences, physical sciences, biological sciences. And I think people who are really genuinely curious about these other perspectives that their colleagues bring. And I just feel like we, we're, we're a department that shares a mission rather than a method. And I just love that, that we, we're bringing all these different tools. And what, what unifies us is this commitment to, environmental work um, and with social justice at the heart of it. We also have a couple of environmental justice scholars who are part of the department. And I think that is also really something I value is this, I feel like all my colleagues see justice and sustainability as intertwined objectives that require each other in order to be successful. Yeah, I really think that's the that's a future or at least a big shift is moving towards that type of organization of the science system. I think uh, my current institute is also like that. And we are quite mixed and interdisciplinary. Yeah. And I, I think that's inevitable as we start to take more of a systems thinking perspective and we start to become interested and recognize really the value and respect the approaches of, of other disciplines. You know, before I take too much of your time, I'm gonna, I want to ask you if there's a place that you want to guide people to find more about your work and to find more about, yeah, your books, for example. Sure. Yeah, I have a website and I, I do update it pretty frequently. <laughs> so you can go to lizcarlisle.com and I have posted all the articles I've written. So if you want to make sure you get past the paywall, that's the place to go. Um, both articles for a general audience and academic articles and my books are there um, and uh, events. I'm speaking a few times this year. So Definitely find me there and, and send me a message too. I have a web form and would would love to hear from other folks interested in these issues. That yeah, sounds good. Thank you, Liz. It's really a pleasure. If 
you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, you can listen to full interviews with all of our guests in the podcast feed. You can also find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, and can be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website. Thank you for supporting the podcast.